The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, January 30th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I saw a couple Oscar-nominated movies over the weekend. You know, to take my mind off our descent into an incompetentocracy. You know, and also the Pro Bowl. Didn't want to think about that. So, saw La La Land, Oscar favorite. Lots of backlash there. It's easy to beat up this movie. This unites Aziz Ansari and Julia Turner in Backlash. Now, the movie, for all you backlashers, it is accurately advertised as a musical. And it is called La La Land. And there is singing. And a bit of hoofing. Might I suggest the rug was only cut, not pulled out from under you, you backlashers, you Julia Aziz axis of backlash. Then there was Moonlight. It is the best-reviewed movie of the year. Metacritic gave it a 99, meaning the top critics, almost every single one of them gave it a perfect, perfect score. Among people who've seen it, I have heard, not praise, what is the word stronger than praise? Devotion, hymnals written to Moonlight. The Guardian says it's a thrilling, deeply necessary work. I did not like Moonlight. I clearly am wrong. I cannot possibly be correct in my assessment that I found it pretty slow and at zero points did I say, gee, I wonder what happens next. Because those are the tired, old, patriarchal, possibly oppressive ways to watch a movie, like wanting stuff to happen. And I clearly was watching Moonlight all wrong, or I lack the fiber, the moral fiber, to watch it right. I mean, look, I I liked all 19 lines of dialogue. Those were great. And the acting and the cinematography, those were great. I'm going to throw this idea out there, though. If you just write off pace and plot, acting and cinematography have more of a chance to shine. In fact, it's up to them to pull up the slack. I find that when I express this point of view or something similar to Moonlight Devotees, they say, oh, which was your favorite Fast and Furious movie? I don't know, the one with the cars? I didn't like any of them. I did like Brokeback Mountain. I like this Brazilian Sonia Braga movie called Aquarius. The plot there was a lady might have to give up her apartment. But I was with it. People at least said things. See, if I had one piece of advice for Moonlight, and I'm pretty sure they'll be coming to me for this sort of advice for the uh, recut. So if I had one piece of advice, it would be this. So there's one part in Moonlight where something happens. One part. And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert here. Skip the next 12 seconds. I won't spoil it much. I just want to say that the thing that happens is the main character does a thing with a chair. Okay. If you saw that part, you know. So anyway, we're outside the spoiler alert. And my advice would be for at that point in the movie, if the character had said, you've been moonlit. Now that's branding. And that's how you get a sequel. You're welcome. Moonlight was not bad. I'm not saying, oh, it wasn't that good, it wasn't that bad. I'm saying, like, you can't judge the movie as bad. I am not for a second going to say that here are some flaws in Moonlight or that it didn't achieve what the director wanted to achieve. I mean, it obviously struck a chord in many. I just can't quite believe the size of the chord. It's listed as the second favorite film to win the Oscar. But the movie has been described as more of a poem than a film. And I agree. I just didn't realize that people like poems. I like some poems. I generally like ones that rhyme, but I like some that don't. Steven Spender, Frank O'Hara, they don't even rhyme, and I like them. But as wrong as I am about Moonlight, clearly obviously wrong about this movie that some thought of as deeply necessary and I thought of as kind of slow, 
I did say this to myself. You know what? Maybe my reaction to Moonlight proves that I am not the out-of-touch elite that Kellyanne Conway keeps saying I am. Maybe I'm not so different than the average American, who it is said that I don't listen to. Maybe I get him. Maybe he doesn't like Moonlight either. Would have liked it a little bit more with, you've been moonlit. He and I both would have liked it a little bit more. But anyway, you know, I, I have this connection now with the former machinist from Muncie. Hey, we both were kind of bored by Moonlight. And I assume we both like Steven Spender. Hey, let's talk immigration policy. Common ground. And that's what I will talk about in the spiel. A bad policy, a bad message, but also some bad places to take our outrage. But first, let's just check in on the actual facts as I speak to the head of the Association of Immigration Lawyers who have been representing clients affected by Trump's executive order. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Joining me now is Benjamin Johnson. He's the executive director of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. He joins us from his offices in Washington, D.C. Hello, Benjamin. Hello. What questions are you getting from clients? Well, I mean, the biggest question we're getting from our members and, and, and that they're getting from their clients is, what does this all mean? Uh, who's impacted? What does it mean for, you know, the, the families and the, uh, you know, the communities where these people are, 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 you know, coming to or coming from? And is there a clear answer to that or a clearer answer within the last 48 hours? There isn't really a clear answer. I mean, I think we have been opposed to this order since it was announced. And what we found now is that it's as ill-conceived as it is wrong. You know, it seems to be sort of a, a campaign promise that's trying to find its way in the in the real world. Uh, you know, I think what's most shocking is that they've attempted to do this before they even have the you know heads of the relevant agencies in place to help translate what this means. You know, from the White House perspective to the to the agency perspective. So there's no guidance. There's no you know indication on on how to do this. So I think the rollout of this has been disastrous. But 
I also think there was never going to be a, a good way to implement a bad policy. Well, the administration keeps citing the figure 109, 109 people were in detention, apparently in the air when the ban was in place. And there was a question what would happen to them once they landed. Is that 109 figure correct as far as you know? Uh, we don't know because they've, you know, they're only releasing the information that seems to be, you know, helpful uh, to to their arguments. Otherwise, they have done everything they can to keep lawyers, you know, anywhere near this particular process or to provide information about, you know, who's being impacted and where. So, you know, even if their 109 number, though, is correct, I mean, they seem to be narrowly tailing it as people that were in the air when it was announced. But certainly people were getting on planes, boarded planes, you know, immediately after the announcement. There's lots of people that we know of. Many more, many hundreds of people that have been told they can't get on planes because the airlines obviously are responsible to making sure that everybody gets on the plane, you know, has the ability to uh, to be admitted or at least to you know to, to follow through on the on the trip. So lots of folks getting excluded from abroad. So I you know I think they're just trying to you know make the best out of really a horrible situation. So uh, I assume that the uh, ILA, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, frequently let's say butts heads or your adversaries would be uh, members of the Department of Homeland Security or Customs, but in the last couple days, have the interactions with those agencies been worse or different or strained or different from what I assume is a professional adversarial relationship in the past? Yeah, look, we have a lot of respect for the, you know, the folks in those agencies on the ground who are trying to, to do important work about you know, implementing our nation's laws. Uh, so we have a lot of respect for them, and I think most of them have a lot of respect for us. But that respect is based on the, the fact that you know, there, there is a bit of an adversarial relationship here. Our job is to, to make sure that our clients have a, you know, the fair, full opportunity to be heard and that the laws, our immigration laws, are implemented in a way that is you know, not only consistent with the statute and consistent with the Constitution, but you know, to the extent possible, consistent with our values as a nation. Uh, so, look, our commitment to continuing to having a respectful relationship with the, with the agents on the ground has, has never wavered. What we need is the same thing that they need, which is an indication of how is this going to be implemented and what policy objectives do we actually think can be achieved by these kinds of sweeping bans. I guess what I'm asking you is the message that your lawyer is getting from them more of one, hey, we're in the dark too and trying to figure this out or more, it's the new reality, suck it up. Well, that's going to depend on, you know, there's, there's uh, personnel at, at, uh, at the U.S. government is, is not a monolith. There's, they're human beings. They have varying opinions. So certainly there are some, you know, what we would think of as rogue officers who are treating this as an opportunity to do things that, you know, they've been looking for an opportunity to do. But I, I think those are the exception to the rule. I think for the most part, we are hearing from those folks, you know, we're in the dark, too. Uh, Let's talk about green card holders. So much confusion about this. On Saturday, the administration said one thing, then Reince Priebus seemed to contradict them on the Sunday talk shows. By Sunday, there was a briefing, an off-the-record briefing, where essentially it was communicated that green card holders can apply direct. Every green card holder who's outside the United States can apply. And the implication is uh, that the, uh, the application will be approved or has been approved in every case. And that's what the process is with green card holders. Uh, Do you guys know what the process is? And is this a legal process to exclude green card holders if um, the agencies deem it necessary? 
Well, there's no question there's been uh, a lot of confusion about it, the application of this to legal permanent residence. Uh, also, doesn't seem to be any doubt that the language of the executive order clearly uh, includes legal permanent residents. Uh, they have tried to walk that back. Part of the reason to walk that back is that they've been told by at least four federal court judges uh, that they must cease and desist <laughs> in terms of the application of this to legal permanent residents. Uh, so, you know, the, the process of telling a legal permanent resident that they're not allowed to uh, enter a country that they've been given, you know, permanent authority to, to live and reside in is a very different process than the process of telling a visitor visa that they need to turn around and, and go home. So those there are due process protections and there are, are processes that uh, in place that must be followed uh, with regard to legal permanent residents, and uh, they initially weren't followed, and it's not entirely clear whether they're being followed now. Those judicial orders also uh, directed the agency uh, to allow those legal permanent residents access to uh, an attorney and for them to open up this process to so these folks have an opportunity to be represented or understand their rights, and, and they have certainly been consistently violating that part of the order. We haven't seen any openness or willingness of the agency to uh, respect the uh, opportunity for these folks to, to get some legal advice to figure out you know, how they navigate a system that even the agents in charge don't seem to understand. So how do your members, how do your lawyers figure out that there are these green card holders in need of lawyers if the agencies aren't alerting you to that fact? Well, oftentimes we get, you know, frantic calls from uh, from family members or perhaps the person in uh, custody is given an opportunity to make a phone call and advise somebody that they've been delayed or detained. So, you know, we hear about them, you know, one at a time or families that are waiting for the arrival of their uh, of these folks, you know, literally in the airports. We've, you know, lots of our members have been down at airports, you know, offering uh, assistance to those families. And, uh, you know, you can tell, uh, <laughs> you know, the grieving, uh, fearful families standing in line waiting are eager for information. So that's where a lot of the information is coming from. But it's quite possible that there's someone who doesn't have a family member representing him on the U.S. side that we don't even know about. And he's a green card holder and no lawyer or anyone has been uh, apprised of this situation. Yeah, as as absolutely uh, true that uh, we don't know what's going on. We don't know how they're treating people. We don't know whether certain people have been turned away already that shouldn't have been turned away. We won't know that until they perhaps land back home and tell a family member that they got returned. You know, so there's definitely an information gap here, and the the process is you know completely lacking in transparency and accountability. What about a dual citizen of, say, the U.K. and Sudan? Does one of those nationalities or does one of those passports supersede the other? Again, it's totally not clear. I mean, on the one hand, they said that it was you know would apply to foreigners who were nationals of those companies, those countries, the, the targeted countries, even if they were carrying an, another passport. And then it was apparently clarified that if they're traveling on a U.K. passport, for instance, uh, and but they happen to be a national of one of those countries, that they would be allowed uh, allowed in. The, the problem is, is that you you can't square the ongoing rhetoric with the words on the paper and. You know, and I, that's, I'm sure, true of the officers that are attempting to figure out what all of this means. The words on the paper very clearly indicate that this is applicable to uh, foreign nationals with dual citizenship. And, you know, their efforts to backtrack on that need to be committed to writing now. 
So I have read that, I think we've all read that you cannot discriminate based on national origin, and there's a 65 law saying as much of the same. But President Obama, for instance, uh, had a 2011 ban against Iraqis. How do those two things square? Well, first of all, it wasn't a ban on, on Iraqis in 2011. Uh, there were increased security measures uh, and a requirement that those uh, that, are, that Iraqis back in 2011 go through a, a separate interview process. But it, it absolutely wasn't a ban on, on their arrival. So there's, you know, a, a significant difference in, in degree um, and scope of, of those two orders. Now, I know in 2011, people were turned back and taken off planes, but your point is that wasn't a national blanket ban. That wasn't a ban based on nationality, even if that happened. Yeah, absolutely. Very different. Uh, that 2011 ban instituted security measures uh, targeted for, uh, you know, towards Iraq, uh, but it was not an all-out ban. It required uh, folks to go through an additional process to be screened to look for you know, legitimate indicators of uh, either a terrorist threat or a security threat. Uh, so it was based on actionable intelligent uh, intelligence driven information not uh you know not religious affiliation or national origin do you think the incompetence and in implementation which we've been talking about how it sows confusion and it's very frustrating and possibly illegal but is it a good thing or a bad thing in terms of the long-term prospects of this ban in other words Will the incompetence wind up weakening what the administration wants or somehow does chaos play into, you know, enacting this uh, more permanently in the long term? Well, I'm of the opinion that, that chaos and incompetence is never a pathway to effective policies or, or good international relations. So I don't see how, you know, the, the ineffectiveness of this implementation and the confusion and chaos around this results in in anything positive. I, I am, though, a bit concerned that part of this series of executive orders that have been rolled out, and we've a lot of attention being pay, paid to this third uh, executive order, but there were two previous executive orders, quite frankly, that have much broader implications. Uh, and I am a little concerned that they have this sort of shock and awe strategy of rolling all of this stuff out, uh, creating an atmosphere of, of, of confusion and uncertainty and some targeted anger, you know, in the hopes that some of it will uh, get uh, you know, get criticized or, or, or challenged legally, but, you know, they can't, uh, you know, we'll overwhelm them by the sheer uh, amount of policy changes that are, that are coming at us. Uh, that's a real concern. And I think for those people that have, you know, begun to take action on this, I think they need to understand that what we're seeing at the airports as a result of this executive action or this executive order is just a snapshot of what can and is likely will be happening at the border and in communities all around the country because of those two previous orders. I mean, there's a level of confusion regarding the enormous enforcement resources of the immigration agency all in the interior and at the border of the United States that's going to result in this same kind of confusion and harm. And finally, I know the law requires a plaintiff withstanding. You just can't challenge uh, a ruling based on that's not fair. You have to have someone whose rights were violated. Is there in the near term such a case we should look for? Because I know later, perhaps in February, that they're going to revisit the uh, case that was filed in Brooklyn. But is there more of a near term case that could challenge this? 
Well, there's already been, you know, as I said, at least four uh, lawsuits uh, that have been filed. Uh, there's been, you know, New York, uh, Los Angeles, Boston, and then also an order in uh, Virginia regarding these kinds of uh, executive orders on the refugee, the most recent executive order on, on refugees and, and immigrants. Uh, those cases, I think, will be important challenges, and you'll see there a sort of a clash of the, admittedly, the broad authority that a president has and the authority that Congress has to determine who comes into the United States. But there is this overarching document that is referenced in these orders. It's called the Constitution. And the Constitution uh, is also uh, the, the critical foundation document here. And and the question of whether we can impose these kinds of religious litmus tests and whether we can impose these kinds of national origin uh, bans is, a, is an important constitutional question that I think is likely to come out through these cases. All right. Benjamin Johnson is the executive director of ILA, the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And now the spiel. Not all squares are rectangles, but all rectangles are squares. Not all cephalopods are octopuses, but all octopuses are cephalopods. So is this a Muslim ban? It doesn't ban all Muslims, but everyone banned is a Muslim. Trump told the Christian Broadcasting Network that this was his intent. He told Rudy Giuliani, get her done. So when he first announced it, he said Muslim ban. He called me up. He said, put a commission together. Show me the right way to do it legally. And it wasn't a some Muslim ban that gave Chuck Schumer at least the sniffles. This executive order was was mean-spirited and un-American. I didn't even know Chuck Schumer got choked up. Then our president helpfully drew my attention to the cheers of Schumer in a tweet and in a chat with reporters. I noticed uh, Chuck Schumer yesterday with fake tears. I'm going to ask him who is his acting coach, because uh, I know him very well. I don't see him as a crier. If he is, he's a different man. There's about a 5% chance that it was real, but I think there were fake tears. Takes a man of true empathy and sensitivity to detect fake tears. But just as Trump has no way of knowing Schumer's motivations, there have been tendencies among those appalled by the Trump executive orders, really, appalled by everything Trump's done, to interpret the thing not just as the thing, but as the sign of the worst thing, or an attempt to distract from the other bigger thing. Trump makes false claims about voter fraud and crowd size. Ah, purposeful distraction tactic for whatever you want it to be for, for Bannon's ascent or Flynn's fall or purging Jews from Holocaust remembrance texts, or The administration doesn't specify the suffering of Jews. That's the purposeful misdirection tactic from the executive orders. It's a series of terrible policies. Ah, ha, ha. No, no, no. It's more than that. It's part of a pattern. It's a trial balloon for autocracy. Look, there may be distractions. There may be bank shots, stalking horses, signal flares, dog whistles, coded messages, disinformation techniques, the long con, the bait and switch, the old switcheroo, or performance art. Or they may not be. Or one thing, maybe a stalking dog whistle and pony show, and another neo-Orwellian paleoconservative double-speak triple bank shot. Some's intentional, and some is just taking a shit sandwich and trying to tell you it's steak. Trump steak, available at Sharper Image. 
So there's White House advisor Stephen Miller, who's kind of a cross between Alex P. Keaton and a Siberian polecat. He goes on CBS this morning to say that thousands of spontaneous protests, embarrassing defections among Republican ranks, and chaos across America's transportation hubs can only mean one thing. It means we're nailing it. Anytime you do anything hugely successful that challenges a failed orthodoxy, you're going to see protests. In fact, if nobody's disagreeing with what you're doing, um, then you're probably not doing anything that really matters in the scheme of things. Miller apparently views the storming of the Bastille as a clear referendum that the reign of Louis XIV was of consequence. It is crazy and crazy-making to try to contextualize and elevate Trump's spin as a grand and effective strategy. Let's think about Occam's razor. They're screwing up and lying to excuse themselves. Now, I'm not asserting that their incompetence will necessarily be their undoing. A Muslim ban is actually popular policy. There are a lot of popular policies that are unconstitutional, either explicitly or at least not in keeping with the spirit of America and the Constitution. In fact, that's why we have a lot of the Constitution as a bulwark against popular policies. If the fathers thought a right would never be taken away, they wouldn't have had to explicitly spell out that you can't take away these rights. They wouldn't need to. But this ban is clearly poorly implemented, and it's also bad policy. It's bad policy because we were vetting Syrians well. And as a general rule, inclusiveness is our greatest weapon against attack by ISIS or any extremist. I'm not as compelled by the no attacks in America have ever come from these particular countries argument. Yes, but in the rest of the world, attacks have come from refugees from all these countries. In a single day this summer in Germany, two separate Syrian refugees went on separate rampages, one with a machete and one blew himself up. And also in Germany, another Syrian refugee had just been arrested as a part to uh, bomb things, hanged himself. It should be noted that that man was turned in by fellow Syrian refugees. But the you're targeting the wrong countries isn't as compelling as we're doing such a good job with vetting as it is so far that things have been working out well. But of course, Trump can't allow this to be the perception. So acting against the recommendations of all experts, he causes this chaos and supports these backwards policies that will eventually hurt America. Not because ISIS will use them to recruit, just because Muslims will be made to feel uncomfortable. Muslims integrating, everyone integrating into America, that is our greatest defense. Saying us and them, that has the most potential for harm. But I guess Trump thinks, hey, someone's going to throw a bomb. It better be me and not them. So I say in this moment, we need to note, we need to report, we need to protest, we need to oppose Trump policies, and we need to hope that enough Americans come to see them as a counterproductive embarrassment. It is a long haul. And it's hard enough without trying to do that work of connecting these red threads on a Trump chart that we're all tempted to assemble in our minds. What we've got to remember most of all is that we're 10 days down, 1,451 to go. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Chris Berube, who thinks that the film A Soldier's Daughter Never Cries might have been improved with the tagline, but she does kick ass. The gist is also produced by Mary Wilson. 
who thinks that four months, three weeks, and two days could have also included the extra phrase and one crazy minute inside a casino cash cube money machine. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Atonement, fine movie, but at the end, they couldn't have tagged it with, now that's what I call an atonement. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He was expecting the revenge thriller, Meek's Cutoff, based on Road Rage. That wasn't the movie he saw. The gist, one last piece of movie marketing strategy. We know the original title, but are you telling me Marina Abramovich, the artist is present, my ninjas wouldn't have done a little more business? Oom Peru, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.